Coming up, the number one fantasy book podcast, breaking down the scrolls and spells of nerd culture. We're Phantology. You may have heard of us. Elaine's the worst. Men would never write two contradicting letters like that. Seriously. This is Jake's, like, very least favorite part of the entire series, I think. Well, it's just... (laughs) Honestly, Elaine has been, like, up to this point, she's been a fine character. I think she's been a great addition. And from here on out, I feel like she just goes further and further downhill. She has some redeeming moments, but more her personality is just so annoying and gets even more annoying as it goes. Yeah, she's going the wrong direction on the hot, crazy scale starting now. What's up, Wetlanders, and welcome to another episode of Phantology. We're covering another Wheel of Time book today. This is number four, The Shadow Rising. I'm Steven, and we have Jake, our Wheel of Time expert, and Caden, our first-time reader, but also an avid Wheel of Time fan already. What's up, guys? How's it going? How's it going? Hey, Steven. How's it going? Nice. So, The Shadow Rising, number four. This is the book that the majority of Wheel of Time fans list as their favorite book out of all 14 plus one books the shadow rising tends to rise to the top when you look at rankings of wheel of time books so i personally am very interested to see what Caden thought after reading this one he's into the fifth right now so he's got experience up through then and i know jake this is like your favorite right am i correct in saying that it was my favorite for such a long time i don't know if it's still my number one favorite just because the finale is so good. But yeah, definitely up there. Top four or five. Yeah, and as for me, as for the for the first four, this this one was definitely my favorite. I like you said, I'm I've started five and so far I'm liking five better than four, but I'm not that far into it. So you guys will have to listen to the next podcast for a updated opinion there. <laughs> nice. Sounds like you are still a fan and excited to see where the series goes, yeah? Yeah, when I originally started reading the series, I thought I would read and then take breaks in between because 14 books all in a row seemed pretty overwhelming. Um, but when I got done with four, that's when I kind of planned to like jump off to a different series and, and read something else. I liked it so much. I'm, I'm just going to keep going and maybe I'll get burned out, but hopefully not. And so far, yeah, still loving it. Four kind of like ramps up the series again, huh? It's kind of like a, a big expansion, like it makes you want more. Yeah, for sure. The ending or just the whole thing opened a lot. There's a lot of new questions. The whole thing was just really interesting. I felt like it it had a really good pace to the book and, and the plot was different. And I thought it was more developed than the the first three books as well. For sure. Overall, it was, it was a solid book. Yeah, I would say in the first three, you definitely get a sense of like, okay, this is gonna be a long series. There's a lot going on, but you don't really know exactly what directions it, it might be going in or who the players are. And then you get to book four and you're like, okay, we got a lot. We, we actually know what the things are that we can expect over the course of 14 books so i would agree with that i see it very much more expansive and gets at this idea of okay we're in this for the long haul and there we'll, we'll talk about this when we get further into the plot but there was one the one scene where you kind of get a lot of the backstory for the whole series like the breaking of the world and things like that and i just thought that was that's probably my favorite part of the book as we'll get into but it really opened up the world more to me and it sucked me in further into the plot and and where the whole series as a whole is going yeah, I totally agree. Honestly, Rand's point of view, there's not a lot that is actually accomplished, I feel like, during his like little plot run in this book. 
but there's so much exposition and background and like expansion of the world that I know that's basically where I like fell in love with um, the wheel of time is learning more, like you said, about the age of legends and the past and the implications on the future. And because of that, in previous books, I haven't really liked Rand's point of view. It's kind of bugged me and I'd much rather be reading through Matt or Perrin. But this book, because of what you just said, I, I actually really enjoyed Rand's perspective and, and the events that happened really made it good to read and I enjoyed it more than the first three. Yeah. Okay, so that's a nice primer for the book. Nice job avoiding spoilers, guys. <laughs> Before we go into spoilers, if you like Phantology, check us out at Phantology Books. You can find us at www.phantologybooks.com on social media. Hop on our Discord and tell us what you like about Wheel of Time and perhaps even consider supporting on Patreon. And we have some exclusive tiers there. So now that that's said, let's talk some spoilers. So if you're just here to listen to us chat and don't want things spoiled, now would be the time to give up, read the book, and come back and listen to our recap. We are going to talk through the entirety of the plot. I'm going to kind of outline and then get Caden and Jake's opinions on the events and themes, etc. So this book doesn't have a prologue. Interesting. The other, the first three had prologues. The prologues gave you kind of these different points of view. And with this book, we start off right away. There are some different points of view because the first chapter has men at the White Tower. It has a scene with the White Cloaks and Ordi and the Shan Chan. So I would say in this book, there are four primary points of view that we're following. We're following Rand and Co. and Elaine and Nynaeve and Co. and Perrin and Fayil and Co. And then there are some points of view at the White Tower. And then every now and then there's kind of like a random point of view from different players. But we start off the book with some expansive things going on and you get a sense of, you know, there's there's some conflict at the White Tower that's brewing. There's some conflict with the Shan Chan that's brewing. We haven't seen them for a little bit. So what do you guys think of the, the start of I, I, just the first chapter? And we'll talk more about kind of the next section of the book. Because I also think the book is divided into segments. So the first, there wasn't a prologue, but the first chapter to me felt like a prologue a little bit, where it sets up a lot of different viewpoints. And or it, it kind of sucks you in. At least I, I loved Min, the, of, of the different points of view in the first chapter. Min's was my favorite. I liked how she went to the tower and was seeing all these different things. And the whole time you're just like, oh, what does that mean? And she's, she sees another viewing of, of someone else. She's seeing them on the, the warders and the Aes Sedai. And, and the whole time you're just like, oh, man, something big's coming. You don't know what. And just and that was the first your first intro. And, and the whole book was right there. And so that, that really sucked me in just from the beginning. And, and I like Min. I think she's cool. And I like her power. And, and so of, of the chapter, that, that part is my favorite where she's at the White Tower there. Yeah, I think Men's probably one of my favorite characters in the Wheel of Time. I know some people kind of hate on her, which is unfair, like no spoilers, but I feel like she's hated on more for the circumstances she's in rather than her personality or how she reacts. But I think she has like one of the better personalities of the women in the books. I feel like this book and the, I want to say the intro, but like you said, it's not a prologue. Just the first chapter does um, a good job of showcasing it, that this book really focuses on how every action previously in the book has like start to have um, effects throughout the world. Like in book two, you, you get a, to get to know um, Moraine and Swan's relationship more and understand that them finding Rand wasn't this 
unanimous effort by the White Tower. It was more of like a, a secret project of theirs because they're not sure who they can trust. And you see the the repercussions of that secrecy and the the fact that there's not open lines of communication. Yeah, there are definitely some payoffs in this book. I think it's interesting with the visions and prophecy, you know, a huge theme throughout Wheel of Time. But this book, we actually see some of these things come true, especially most of the viewings that Min is having here. We're going to understand exactly what they mean by the time the book is over mm-hmm. compared to like some of the things that Matt gets into in a later part of the book. You know, that is not necessarily resolved until much, much later in the series. So I like that we at least get some payoffs. Another part of the chapter um, with Elida, up to this point, you're always wondering, is she a dark friend? Is she just really annoying? And you kind of see more of her background insights as to why she's suspicious of Dalmerlincy and Moraine. And by the end of the book, you kind of hate her. But I, I, I thought that part, like a little bit from her point of view, was really nice and in, in seeing more into her character, um, that she's worried about like the, the House of Andor and the final battle there. So it seems like she's doing things, trying to like save the world in a way, right? But she's just misguided. And she definitely has her motivations. They show that they're, they're grounded in, in a reality, but no one has all the, all the information. Everyone's missing some pieces. Like she, she had that um, uh, foretelling that the house of Andor was key to winning the last battle. And she sees herself as that, like the best connection to that. So she wants to take charge. I can't remember. Do they do they say in this book? Uh, do they like go into how that connection to Andor is important? I don't want to spoil anything. I don't think so. Okay. As far as I know, just kind of what you've said so far that she had the foretelling and yeah. she wants to. She thinks that she can be a big influence in keeping the line of Andor alive and being there at the final battle. Yeah, I think I know what you mean, Jake, and I think that is kind of hinted at, and you can probably read between the lines, but it's not fully revealed yet. Not explicitly, no. But what I was trying to say is just um, agreeing with you. Uh, they do a good job of showing you she's not just just acting out of jealousy or for being a bad person. Like there's some legitimate, you know, this is the best way I see to save the world in there. But that kind of arrogance is it's kind of a theme throughout all the ruling class in these books. You see their arrogance and how how that becomes causes such problems for everyone down the line. So, Caden, I've been asking you after every book. Where you stand on Elida's status, is she a dark friend or is she not? And it sounds like after this one, you're maybe thinking not. Yeah, I'm definitely in the not camp right now. Uh, I don't think she is. I, I would say like in the in uh, previous books, it was more like a, I don't know, like 75% chance that she wasn't, but still could be. Right now I'm like at like 100% she isn't a dark friend. So after she overthrows the tower and stills the Amerlin and the Keeper, these events have convinced you that she is not a dark friend. <laughs> I think she's just crazy. Like, I think she just <laughs> is a hateful person. And I don't know, you kind of get that feel like the Reds are like, just kind of hate the world is what it seems like up to this point in the book. They're always talking about them like they're really annoying and unfriendly and hate men. And and so, yeah, it just seems like she didn't like Suan. And yeah, I, I don't think she's a dark friend. I think I definitely think there's dark friends right at the White Tower, but... I don't know, maybe that's unpopular, but that's what I think right now. How do you like how believable do you think it is that so many people supported her in that in that coup that was barely wasn't like barely legal, like like passed on like the very minimum laws required? I always thought it was interesting how many in the tower actually supported her. Later on they kind of give some reasoning for that, but 
I just felt like if something like that happened with the president here, there would be some major backlash. Well, and she kind of used some false pretenses too, because I think she told people that Swan and Leanne were responsible for times freeing, right? That was part of the reason why they were able to dispose. Yeah, I think that's right. And they don't go out and say it, but it sounds like she blackmailed or, you know, like kind of bullied a lot of the people into it, right? So, well, there are some that... I think a lot of them probably used it or looked at it as a opportunity for their own power, like to, to gain more power too. Right. They're just kind of riding her coattails in a sense. Yeah. I would say this is like if Snape and the Slytherins disposed Dumbledore and took over Hogwarts. Disposed or deposed? Deposed. (laughs) Disposed of Dumbledore via a deposition. Yeah, there you go. Didn't he get chased out of Hogwarts a couple times? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Tune in to our latest Harry Potter episode. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's move on so we can kind of make our way through the plot. So the the action begins in Tyr after the third book. And the first thing that happens is we get all these bubbles of evil that are kind of giving us exposition into where the characters are at. So Perrin and Fael have grown closer and they're also fighting flying axes and Matt is gambling and using his luck and he's also fighting off animated playing cards and Rand is putting off Berylaine who is trying to come on to him. And at the same time, he's fighting off these creepy mirror images of himself. So this is a nice way of getting us into the book by using some action action sequences. That isn't just a random Trolloc attack, which if you listen to our previous episode, you'll know that I'm a little tired of. (laughs) I, I loved it. I, the whole idea of the bubble of evil and how that relates to the philosophy of the pattern and the age lace and everything and the dark one's influence. I thought that was such a cool idea. Yeah, I agree. I like I like the first part. I feel like the while they're in tier, the first part of the book kind of seemed to drag on to me. It kind of feels like just like one eternal day, even though there there is multiple days that they're there. Yeah. So yeah, I, I agree that the bubbles of evil, that part's cool. And I like how it appeared differently and you bounce around between Matt and Perrin and and Rand, but the, the the whole overall interior was not one of my favorite parts of the book. Yeah, it was it was definitely a build up. When I when I think back to it, every time I go to reread it, I'm like, oh yeah, this part is like a chapter, right? And then you realize, oh no, this is like three or four chapters of the same stuff before things actually start going. I should look it up, but I think it's more like seventeen. Is it seventeen chapters? They're yeah. in tier for a long time. It's like seventeen to twenty. The book's like fifty eight, and I was like, man, this. It's so short to me. I mean, there's there's so much buildup. Like they they showcase the political tensions and everything that Tom is doing to try to support Rand there. I like how that is an aspect of the book. I read these before Game of Thrones, so I wasn't used to a series that really focused on like the minor actions of side characters and how they can have real consequences. Like I feel like other books is like, oh, now he's king and everyone obeys him. But with Rand, it's like, okay, you you have the title, but people are still going to do what they want and try to use that. Also, when you said, when you, sorry, I have to say this, when you mentioned Matt and his animated card game battle, I just imagined him dueling Pegasus in the shadow realm with <laughs> playing cards. For his soul. Yeah. His soul. <laughs> I think the, the bubbles of evil are genius. Again, it's kind of like the Taviran thing. It's a, like a real world explanation for plot armor and also just, Something exciting needs to happen. I don't know what to do. Oh, we'll just we'll just throw a bubble of evil in here and then we can have some action that's 
it fits in world, but it doesn't have to be a direct consequence of another action. Yeah, it's definitely something that Robert Jordan uses to move the plot along, but you've got to do something to move the plot along in a book. And I think action is a great way to do it. No, yeah, I, th- I think it's it's genius how he came up with the idea for it. So the events that are actually happening in Tyr, let's talk through what happens in these 17 or 18 chapters. Because yeah, Jake, it's a lot longer than you think. And this is actually something that I wanted to touch on. I'm glad you brought it up right away, Caden, is I think it's interesting. People love this book so much, but the beginning is pretty weak, in my opinion. I mean, compared to the way the the first three books started with action and you got it, we were leaving on an adventure right away and, you know, Trollocs were attacking or whatever. And yes, Trollocs do attack again. They always do. But at the same time, the action was always moving along a lot faster in these three. And it seems like in the fourth one, we're doing a slow burn here. And I mean, look, this is Wheel of Time. So slow burn is something that you can expect throughout the rest of the series. But I think it's interesting that people say they love the fourth book so much and they kind of overlook a week's beginning. I would say it's weak, honestly, but it could be just because of all the good payoff later in the book. Again, I never remember it being as long as it is. And I think thinking back to book two, that beginning dragged more for me than book fours does, but it's probably shorter in chapter length, like before the action starts in book two. I don't know. How'd you feel reading it, Caden? Yeah, I felt like it dragged. I got into this book a lot more once they left here. Yeah. And I, I think the ending of the book, like we'll get in and go into it in a second, but like definitely the best of the four so far, the ending. But yeah, I think the beginning of this one, like one through three had a better, like a faster pace. And, and there are a couple things in the 17 chapters that I really like that I think set up, but I think there was a lot too that could have been cut out. And maybe I just haven't read enough of the series yet. Because I, I mean, I, there's things with Matt that we'll talk about in just a second too, right? That I know like they weren't addressed in book four and I know they'll come up later, but, and, and that was interesting, but there are other things like the whole part with Elaine and Rand. And it's like, all right, let's move on. <laughs> yeah. Stealing kisses in the Stealing in the kisses, yeah. <laughs> the only thing I have to say about that is I feel bad for Min because Min's like in love with Rand and halfway across the world and you're just like, come on. Like, and then Elaine's being Elaine. Elaine's the worst. Men would never write two contradicting letters like that. Seriously. This is Jake's like very least favorite part of the entire series, I think. Well, it's just, (laughs) honestly, Elaine has been like up to this point, she's been a fine character. I think she's been a great addition. And from here on out, I feel like she just goes further and further downhill. She has some redeeming moments, but her personality is just so annoying and gets even more annoying as it goes. Yeah, she's going the wrong direction on the hot, crazy scale starting now. <laughs> <laughs> so the the actual events that happen. So Moraine's kind of talking about the Dark One's prison weakening. No one knows what to do. The girls learn that there's something dangerous to Rand in Tanchiko from, I think, a World of Dreams thing. Or no, from the block Aja gives them yeah. some information. Yep. And then we get a lot of love and feelings and politics type conversations and i i, I kind of gloss over those because I, I don't know there's a lot of it the politics are all important for basically the rest of the series the relationship stuff i think they just needed to kind of tie up okay rand's rand and Egwene aren't going to be together moving on to other interests i liked how Egwene gets called to the waste by the aiel that's cool for her her dream walking mm-hmm and then the whole parent, parent and Fail relationship, I think there's lots of uh, development there, as well as him hearing about everything that's going on in Two Rivers. I think that's all important. Yeah, I know, Caden, in the, in the third book, you were a little confused how quickly the parent and Fail relationship 
was proceeding. So I think the beginning of this book does a lot to kind of set up their relationship throughout the rest. Agree? Yes, I still think it moves a little fast in this book, too. <laughs> yeah. You know, they end up getting married or whatever. You're like, okay, that, that was fast. But I, I did like that part. I agree. I think it definitely solidified their relationship. And I think throughout the whole book, they do a good job of actually like making their relationship stronger. And yeah. Some, like relationship progression. There's definite like, you know, relationship drama that I feel like is is pretty realistic for how relationships go. And I mean, the Barry Lane jealousy. I don't know why it had to be a thing, but it brings out some a few good scenes and a lot of annoying scenes. One part I really like about this first part in Tear is when uh, Lanfear comes to to Rand. Right there's we talked about the Trolloc attack or whatever because I feel like that that is probably the biggest impact in the book for me of things that happen in this this part in Tear that has a direct influence on the rest of the plot. Right where she comes and kind of starts prodding him in a direction that. I mean, I, I think that Lanfear really like gets her way in this book and kind of gets Rand to do kind of what she wants. And I think that kind of started here. Yeah. Yeah, Lanfear's interesting because the other Forsaken we've seen are big bads that Rand needs to destroy with Balefire or by whatever means necessary. But Lanfear is like the devil on his shoulder almost. She's Yeah, all the rest of them either want him dead because they love the Dark Lord or want them de- him dead because they're jealous or whatever. But Lanfear... Lanfrey almost just wants to, you know, wants him to take power and, and be with her kind of thing. I'm I'm torn on, on like if that's what it is, if she just is like in love with him and wants him to have power or if she's like totally manipulating him behind the scenes and like is just yeah. kind of having fun portraying like, you know, that she's in love with him or whatever. And there's probably some of that. She is kind of crazy. Right. But it made at least in the in the first three books, Lanfrey didn't seem that scary or kind of seemed kind of harmless a little bit like she's around in this book. I think at least she became a, a lot bigger threat that will continue to go on in, in, in the series. Were you kind of frustrated that he didn't just kill her? Yes. It seems like he had time. moments to do that, right? <laughs> He's like, I can't kill a woman, but you have the book before. He goes a little crazy camping and right. kills a, a woman. I mean, she was a dark friend. Well, Lanfear is worse than a dark friend. Yeah, right? exactly. You'd think he'd be able to. I wonder, wonder how much the Celine relationship like has to do with that. And if nothing else, like he could at least trap her. Or, you know, like, yeah, she doesn't have to walk around free, right? And yeah. Part of it, though, too, like, yeah, he is going crazy. It seems like he wasn't as crazy in previous books in this book, but he, he starts to have, like, kind of memories of Luz Theron, and you kind of wonder, is some of that, like, playing into his blind spot with Lanfear? Like, so is he is he going crazy, and is, is that, like, a, a symptom of it or, or not? And it's hard, hard to tell. Yeah. Did you pick up, Caden, on some of the backstory with Lanfear from the part in Ruidian where it, it went through like, you know, the beginning of the Aeol and their role in the age of legends. And when they broke into the boar and all that, did you pick up on Lanfear's role there? Yeah. Well, is her name like Mirin or something like that? Yeah. 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 That's who, yeah. So that's what I thought was who she was. So she was kind of, it, it made it seem like she was the one responsible for like, breaking into the yeah the dark ones prison yeah which kind of i think that can explain why she's one of the crazier ones because you know she was there when the boar was created so you'd assume that that some of the dark ones influence um a full blast of it yeah exactly <laughs> like a full blast of it yeah <laughs> so a couple other scenes we should talk about in tier the stone was attacked again by trollocs ran just kind of burns them all up 
His power level has increased yet again. And I think the most interesting scene in tier for me was when Matt goes through the twisted doorway into the Terangreal and visits with the Elfin. Is it the Elfin this time or the Elfin, Jake? Uh, I think it's the Elfin with an A. I could yeah. be wrong, though. I, I think that's what it is, too. The snakes, right? Yes. I can never, honestly, I can never remember which are snake and which are foxes. I think the elfin with the E's are the foxes. Are they the foxes? Yeah. We'll go with that because they're like elves with pointy ears like foxes. Okay, so <laughs> when Matt goes through the Terangrail, he's kind of done this after um, learning from Moraine about what this, this doorway does. And he goes through and asks some questions and gets some answers. At the same time, Moraine and Rand are also inside the Terangreal and getting their own questions and answers. You don't get what those are, but you do get Matt's point of view here. And you get a lot of interesting prophecies. It talks about him marrying the daughter of the Nine Moons, dying and living again, giving up the light of the world, to, or giving up half the light of the world to save the light of the world. So I'm like all in for these types of things because it just gets your mind racing and then like everything else in the book, you're just cued into any little clue like, oh, is this what it means type thing. So I'm really into the prophecy. It's probably my favorite part of Wheel of Time, if I have to say. I, I really like this part with Matt too. Part of me is like, dang it, why couldn't he just ask smarter questions? And the whole time he's just like rushing through it. And same with when he goes and visits the elfin later, right? He's just like, doesn't really know what yeah. he's into and he just like blows it. Or maybe he doesn't blow it. But at the same, you're just like, come on, just like slow down. Like think for a second here, but if he, if he did that, then it would it wouldn't give you the effects even that you're looking for, right? Where the whole time you're like, all right, well, what what did this mean? And yeah, you start to pick up on things like yeah, who's the daughter of the the nine moons? And you you hear that mentioned in the next, in a couple later chapters, you're like, oh, here we go, you know? And do you know who the daughter of the nine moons is? You yourself? No, I don't. I feel like they may have mentioned her in previous books, but I'm not positive. Like in passing. I think it's kind of mentioned in passing a little bit. Yeah. Right now, I just know that it's related somehow to the Sanchan. Yeah. And I probably have to go back and, and see, because when it was mentioned earlier, I probably didn't realize that it was important. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Stephen. The prophecies are like one of the biggest, the best parts of the Wheel of Time. And Robert Jordan does really a really good job of, for the most part, dropping little seeds that have good payoff, like books down the line. And I agree, Caden, that it's frustrating that Matt didn't come in better prepared. But at the same time, if he had, like, that wouldn't have been Matt, right? Like, Matt yeah. is off, you know, living off the cuff of his sleeve. Rand goes in having read two books and knowing exactly what he wants to have answered. But Matt, on the other hand, is like, ooh, what's going on here? Give me my answers. Yeah, very true. And the whole, the whole book, Matt, Matt is true to his character, and that, that's who he is, right? He's just kind of along for the ride and gambling and chasing after girls and Okay, so after this happens, we assemble our different parties, and the book really takes off. So we've got through our 17, 18 chapters of Tyr, and now we split off into three different directions. So team one is Matt and Rand and Moraine and Avienda and a bunch of other Aiel, and they're going to follow the portal stones and go off to the Waste. And also Egwene is in that group. And team two is Perrin and Fail and Loyal. And I guess that's kind of the main players. Some, some Aiel as well. And Shyad and Gaul. Yeah. Yeah. And they're going to go through the ways and go off to the two rivers because they've learned that the two rivers is under attack from White Cloaks. And team three is Elaine and Nynaeve. 
and Julian and Tom and probably some other supporting cast, they're going to hop on the Wave Dancer, which is a Seafolk ship, and go off to Tenchico, which I think is the capital of Terrabon, yes? And yeah. they're doing this because they've learned from the Black Aja and the World of Dreams that there are some there's some kind of dangerous thing to Rand. There, I've, I think at this point they even know that it's a male Adam, which, you know, would control, they would be able to use that on Rand to control him. So they're going to shut that down and to explore what's going on with Black Aja a little bit more. So now we're taking off, right? And and then the book just kind of proceeds following like each different plot thread through a few chapters and then going back and forth. So which one of these three was your favorite? Uh, close tie for me between Rand in The Waste and Perrin. I thought Nynaeve and Elaine's part was kind of boring. It also doesn't really have a satisfying ending in this book where Perrin's at least that part of the story kind of resolves towards the end and same with Rand's a little bit more too. I just like watching Perrin kind of grow. I feel like his growth is a lot more realistic than any of the other characters. I think I've mentioned this before, probably. I like watching him kind of take on a leadership role as he, you know, has to take on the Trollocs in the two rivers. And then I feel like Nynaeve and Elaine think they're like, I just think over arrogant to me, like thinking they can take on like these 11 Black Aja and a Forsaken and they kind of just seem to get by on this, like, by luck, kind of that they haven't been captured and killed already. Yeah, some of Matt's luck has rubbed off on him the last time he saved him. <laughs> exactly, yeah. It just seems like Nynaeve can suddenly pull out whatever she wants whenever she's attacked and suddenly become more powerful than whoever's attacking her. I feel like the other people, like, there's a bigger fight and it's a bigger struggle in, with Perrin and, the, and Slayer and the Two Rivers. And same with, like, Rand, even, when he's battling later on. Like, it's still, like, a closer battle and a little bit more realistic about their powers than with Nynaeve and Elaine. Yeah. And it also seems like Matt and Rand and Perrin are also taking significant steps forward in character growth and, and powers and, and just general who they are as people. And Elaine and Nynaeve are still pretty much the same after their adventures. Yeah. Like you said, the stakes are not as high. I wonder if this is kind of like a used for comedic relief, but the thing that frustrated me most about their plot line is when it, when you compare it to Matt, or I guess it'd be Rand and Perrin, Rand has these plans he's trying to accomplish, you know, and he's willing to get help from anybody. He's like wary of other people's helps because he doesn't want to be pulled along. And same with Perrin, like he's, he has this goal to defend the two rivers and he's willing to get help from anybody to do it kind of thing. But Elaine and Nynaeve, like they have Tom and Julian and Bail Doman, like all these really talented supporting casts. And the whole time they're just like talking down to them, just like, oh, no, 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 we can do this ourselves. Like, why not pull together as a team, utilize these people's skills instead of kind of pitting them against each other and not taking them seriously? Like, I feel like they could have done so much more if they would have just like used the resources they had with them. And I get it was probably like comedic relief to show like the the conflict of personalities there and stuff. There is to die, man. They don't they don't tell other people their plans or involve them in what they're doing they can do it all themselves yeah <laughs> strike two against elaine <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to strike three by the end <laughs> yeah i guess we kind of skimmed over the letters thing jake it's not that big of a it's not that big of a plot point but she's just not very mature in her relationship with rand <laughs> i love how at the end of the whole time is like didn't you read those letters elaine sent you you should you should listen to those letters again and he's like these letters made no sense at all. 
Yeah, he's like, yeah, thanks for the advice. I've, I've read the letters a few times, Avienda. Yeah. Please explain them. <laughs> also, I freaking love Avienda. She's awesome. I was going to say, if you're looking for comic relief, I feel like her and Rand are way more like entertaining than yeah. uh, Nynaeve and Tom or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I think one fantasy trope that never gets old for me is the comic relief between the known and the unknown in terms of societies. When you have one group that you know everything about, and then you bring in, you know, like the more primitive or really just any kind of alien society in, and they're trying to learn about each other. There's always miscommunication. It's really easy to make it funny. That's that's always a, a highlight for me in fantasy. So going through the Aiel stuff, let's talk uh, Matt going through the other doorway and everything that happens at Rudine. So everyone kind of heads out there. Matt, Rand, Avienda, Moraine as well. This is after they've met up with Samail, learned some customs. They learn about Jaito and Gaishan. Did I say that right, Jake? Is that close? Close enough. I don't know. Okay. Sorry, Steven. That's not, not how Michael Kramer says it, but I'll, I'll let it pass. To be honest, Michael Kramer doesn't even know how to be consistent with his own pronunciation so i know it's so true and then like kate is it kate redding is that reading or whatever her name is she comes on and says completely different like the next the next chapter too it always makes me laugh and their husband and wife you think they would like talk to each other like plan out this is how we're gonna pronounce things there's a glossary in the back of each book that gives pronunciation it's not that hard guys i can picture her saying something just like looking over at him kind of with like an evil glare like this this is how you say it and then like, yeah he always says Giladon for Gildon. How dare he? How dare what he? What is he thinking? Anyways. What a travesty. <laughs> anyway, we go to Rudine, which is how I'm going to say it, but you can feel free to pronounce it however you like. And Matt doesn't go through the columns. He goes through the doorway and he gets killed, right? He goes in. He doesn't know what he's doing once again. Starts asking a bunch of questions, and they kick him out, and he's hung from the Tree of Life there, Avicendora, or something like that. I don't, I don't remember how to pronounce that one either. And luckily, he, Matt or, or Rand is able to cut him down and revive him. But in addition, he earns a Foxhead Terangriel medallion, which protects him from flows of the One Power. He comes out with a cool weapon, which is a cool weapon. <laughs> for now and he also gets the holes in his memory filled with uh remnants of past commanders and so i think that is probably the coolest thing that he gets because to be able to think back to like all the stored memory of historical battle commanders that's gonna be pretty cool anyway i just love matt's parts here where he comes in and has no idea what he's doing and kind of gets his butt handed to him a little bit but is able to always come out on top so one question I have is I don't remember where he loses his memory, like the holes. I was trying to think back, like where, when does that happen? It's when he, uh, he gets healed from the dagger. So a lot of his memory from when he had the dagger disappeared, but it seemed like when they healed him from it and removed its influence, it kind of like stripped away his memories. But he also, even in book one, he had memories of his, like, like the old blood running strong in him. Like he would speak the old tongue in book one. So I was always kind of confused how much of him remembering past lives was due to that, due to the dagger, or due to the eelfin. I feel like it was kind of this mumbled mesh together. And it's kind of confusing where he got his luck powers from as well. Never, yeah. Yeah, I don't know where those come from yet. I haven't figured that out if that's a if it's ever explained or not. 
At this point, he's a pretty good conglomeration of different powers and abilities, though. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I love this part because just like in classic Matt, he just like jumps through this, you know, magical door, right? Not thinking it could pot- like possibly do different than what he already did. It kind of one part about this part that I don't like is that Rand pops out at the magical moment to save him because like Rand was in there for like a week, right? And so Matt must have been in his place for longer too to be able to be revived and it's just like oh they happen to be at the same time it feels a little weird plot wise to me Tavarian, right yeah Tavir. yeah okay yeah. Good, good easy out there steven easy out yeah yeah it's, it's another plot armor thing i'm not i'm not mad about it, it overall it's good yeah I, I like the whole the whole Roidian or however you say that i mean that's that's probably my favorite scene of the book we can go to it in a minute is, is what rand sees right mm-hmm. yeah let's let's talk to that so Rand goes through this other Terengrail of, I think they're like glass columns. And as he's walking through every step that he takes, he gets memories from his ancestors. So this is like confirmed. Rand is of Aiel blood. He actually gets his full family tree kind of given to him by some of the wise ones later on. But for every step that he takes through, he sees back generations and generations back further. He learns that the Aiel used to essentially be like servants of the Aes Sedai. And then after everything that happened in the Age of Legends and the breaking of the world, they slowly fell away from that and in order to survive, became the Aeol that we see now. And this is a big deal for the Aeol because their whole society is kind of rooted on these ideas of honor, etc. And so for them to learn that they used to serve, they used to serve the Aes Sedai and now they don't and all of this, like it's this huge revelation that's going to be important later on. And as I was kind of preparing for this and thinking through this, it reminds me of, no spoilers for Stormlight I Carve, but it reminds me of something in Oathbringer. You guys probably know what I'm talking about, where there's this big revelation that happens, kind of similar, and it's going to have big ramifications, and it has already in the past. So I think this is a cool idea. Yeah, I really like the idea of this society built so much on honor, realizing that they they have done the worst thing to lose all their honor in the past their society did and how just that juxtaposition and i think the development of the aiel and like the gen aiel and the difference between them and the tinkers and the aiel we know today just how how that evolved over time even though it's shared in like a chapter or so i think that it was written really well to how you could see how that would naturally progress and change over time we've had other parts in the wheel of time where you've had like scenes flash and it seemed like this one flew, like this had a lot better flow in it. And I love that it went backwards in time instead of like, yeah, you know, and that just like the whole time you're like, oh, okay, that's cool. And then you go for back further. And you're like, oh, now I see why that is. I just thought it did a really good job of like revealing things by going backwards. That, that was really cool to me that Robert Jordan wrote it like that instead of starting at the beginning and, and going forward. I think the whole revelation part, that's, it's probably the reason it's my favorite book in this, at least one of my favorite books in the series is just. How, like you're saying, just not just the information that is shared in the background of the story, but how it's delivered in such a way where it's just like pulls you in more and more. Like every time it would, it would, he'd take another step and then he was back to reality and he'd see Kuladin's brother right there. Like I was just itching for him to take that next step so I could see what else is going to happen and try to piece together the history of the world here. Yeah, I thought Robert Jordan does a really good job of showing this previous society, right? Or previous world. He like creates a whole nother world in that, just those two chapters, right? 
and then shows like a really good way of how it progressed to where it is now. And it's a pretty cool world, right? They're pretty technologically advanced and it's very different than the Wheel of Time ran land that we know so far. Something I just thought of. So he's seeing it through the eyes of his ancestors, right? So the further back in time, it says like great times, whatever, grandfather. But how weird is it that one of the points of view was alive at the same time as Luce Theron, who is him? Well, it's the same soul. You know what I mean? Like it's reincarnation, mm. but it's not following a bloodline, you know? Yeah, that is interesting. If he, like, if Luce Theron could have talked to that Aiel that was Rand's whatever grandfather and, like, knowing, oh, you're going to be, like, I'm going to be reincarnated through your line. It's kind of interesting. That actually could have been a cool way that they really could have connected the whole turning yeah. of the wheel idea, but I guess not. I do think it's cool how we've seen the Tinkers in book one and I think a little bit in book two, right? But I like how this book has a huge emphasis on tinkers again, right when you learn like their origin story and you know, like what's like why they're searching for this song. Like, it's cool how you learn about these people and then a different character who hasn't learned anything about them is like spending time with them unbeknownst to them. You know what I mean? Like the readers have had this aha moment, but the, the characters haven't really had that. Yeah. So let's talk some Perrin storyline because that's what you're referring to right i'm assuming so Perrin gets to the two rivers and he meets this character named slayer who is this force in the wolf dream that's going around killing wolves and is his adversary throughout this book and he's a bit of a mysterious figure and Perrin also learns that his family was killed in some of these trollock attacks or so he thinks in reality it was ordyth right who actually staged it to look like a Trolloc attack, but he took out Perrin's family because he's obsessed with Rand and all the other boys and he's trying to stir up trouble. Ordeeth is Fane in a kind of different, not reincarnation, but an entirely different persona here. And so Perrin has to now defend the two rivers against the threat of the Trollocs and against the incursion of the White Cloaks. In order to do that, he enlists some allies. So he's got Varen and Alana some as uh, some Sedai that we've seen before. Varen was obviously pretty prominently featured in the first few books. And Perrin takes charge pretty quickly. And you can kind of see him giving orders. The older men of the two rivers defer to him really quickly. And he has to kind of deal with this. This is his internal conflict of I'm a leader and people are dying for me. But at the same time, it's like, I don't really know what I'm doing. Yet it's successful. And part of it is pushed along by his Tavarian nature. Part of it is 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 his persona part of it is help from fail but he's able to kind of craft this you know lord golden eyes persona that's pretty cool by the end of the book you're like okay perrin is has arrived a little bit you know he's lord of the two rivers and he's he's fought off the trollocs so i thought perrin's and kaden you mentioned this that the perrin's storyline here really compelling so one thing i'll just nitpick real quick sorry not to take away from what you just said the the side of the uh the white cloaks wanting perrin kind of doesn't make sense in my head. Like, we know that, who was it? His father, is it Bornhall's father that was killed in, in earlier? Right. in At the end of, was it book two? Right. They're all blending together at this point. Like, they know it was, like, Perrin working with Aes Sedai is what they think, right? And it just seems like they have this vendetta out against him that a rational, normal person wouldn't have. And maybe Bornhall's just crazy, and maybe he's being influenced by Pot on Thane, but... I don't think so, because he already won a parent before that. It just seems that part's a little hard for me to believe that he's like come all this way just just for Perrin. 
but maybe the children of the light are never rational anyway and they're just like always thinking everyone's a dark friend so maybe it's not that good deal but sorry i just had to get that that off my chest there yeah i mean you have this society of zealots and then you have and especially zealous zealot and there and then he's kind of <laughs> convinced the son of you know of what was it geoffram bornhold yeah I don't joffram, know. joffram. Yeah. like you've convinced the son dane is the guy's name dane. right yeah dane bornhold who's who's the guy who was there with his father buyer was that buyer yeah yeah child buyer is your really zealous zealot yeah, yeah exactly yeah he's the so he's convincing the son that like look this guy is responsible for your father's death and then you the pat and fane influence isn't isn't going to be good for anybody. So it's yeah. kind of all those things combined together. And Perrin, I mean, to be fair, Perrin did kill White Cloaks in book one that, I don't know, could be construed as, at the very least, manslaughter, you know? Yeah, then that said, I, I like like you said, I really like Perrin's progression through this part. I like how he interacts with the Aes Sedai. He's wary of them, but you kind of get that Varen doesn't trust Alana. And then I like, yeah, I just like watching him become a leader and he doesn't want to be a leader, which I like his reluctance and, and how he's humble. But, you know, he kind of, he, I mean, he owns it and he does a great job. Uh, I like his progression, just like with the world of dreams at this part where he's chasing down Slayer. I was a little disappointed in Slayer and I don't know. It doesn't seem like that part's fully over, but it seems more of just like an intro to him. Did you make the connection who Slayer is? With Luke? yeah. Yeah, I, that's who I thought it was before. Like, I think they, they'd kind of reveal it right when he like runs out after he gets shot. But yeah, that's who I thought it was going to be before. Right. But you don't know. Slayer is still kind of this nebulous entity. Like, who is this dude? Right. What are his motivations? We have no idea. And he yeah. looks different and smells different than Luke, too. So there's there's something going on there. Yeah. From this part, though, the real hero, I love Loyal. I feel like Loyal is just like... I don't know. He's an awesome character. He basically saves the two rivers in my mind because he goes up and destroys the way gate and then carries is a gall all the way back running for like how many days. So yeah. loyal, like huge shout out to loyal at this part. He was awesome. And I, I think he's an underrated character. Yeah, he really is. Let's just wrap up the rest of Perrin's storyline while we're here. And then we can go through the other ones. So Perrin starts to lead some raids against the troll acts who are invading. Like you said, they're coming in through the way gate and that needs to be closed, so Loyal takes that on. Nice job, Loyal. And unfortunately, enough Trollocs have come where we're going to mass for a huge battle. And when Perrin gets back to the Two Rivers after kind of leading some raids and rescuing some people, they're like all ready to go. They've cut down a bunch of trees. They've got a killing field set up. They've got catapults, and they win, they win the big battle. And Perrin is kind of struggling with leadership at this point. The White Cloaks try to arrest Perrin, but they agree to delay until the Trolloc threat is over. And then before the final battle, so there's like two big battles, before the really big battle at the end that we're less certain of the outcome, Perrin ma- marries Fael. So Fael and Perrin's relationship has been progressing. And then he sends her away to safety as any honorable Randland man would do. <laughs> Unfortunately, she doesn't. Well, fortunately, I should say she doesn't run off to safety she rallies the surrounding communities to come down and save the day and they defeat the trollocks in the in the climactic battle for the two rivers the white cloaks did nothing though the white cloaks were not able to help for whatever reason these guys are a little bit of cowards sometimes i'll say they they did not see fit to lend their swords to a bunch of random citizens 
And Perrin, as a result, does not agree. He does not submit to being arrested. And the Children of the Light go off in a hump. And Ordif is furious. So that's kind of Perrin's storyline. Any other, I mean, we kind of talked through some of these things. Anything else stand out from the rest of Perrin? I think the biggest takeaway here is that his growth into a leader, his relationship with Fael, how it progresses, and then the relationship with the White Cloaks, how he almost, there's almost a resolution there, but then, it you know, tension still goes on. I think some honorable mentions are the Tower of Genjai is highlighted a little bit while he's in the Wolf Dream, and we get to talk to Birgitta. Interesting how the uh, Heroes of the Horn are hanging out in the World of Dreams. I just made this connection when I was writing notes for the podcast. Perrin's basically Samwise Gamgee. I don't know if you guys have read read The Lord of the Rings, but at the end of The Return of the King, spoiler for Lord of the Rings, um, at the end of The Return of the King book, all the heroes go back home besides Frodo. Okay, yeah, yeah. And, and the Shire has been overrun with evil men under the command of Saruman. And Samwise... Wicked men. Yeah, wicked men. Yeah. And uh, Sam and Mary and Pippin kind of rally the town together and and fight off the men and kind of reclaim the, the Shire as their own. And then Sam becomes, was he just the mayor? I don't remember. He becomes some like, basically like the leader of the Shire. And I feel like Perrin is pretty analogous to him, how he's more down to earth. Like he really just wants to be a blacksmith. Sam just wants to go back home. Like he was never really in it for the adventure. He was just doing his duty kind of thing. So somehow in any of the 10 endings that the Return of the King movie had, they weren't able to fit in the scouring of the Shire. They were not. Nice, nice chapter title. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Have you read Lord of the Rings? <laughs> yeah. I think it's interesting that you thought of Lord of the Rings because I was actually thinking the same thing, picturing uh, the two rivers as the Shire. Because I, I was going to say, I really like that they went back because I like the characters in, in yeah. the two rivers and was glad we got to see them again in town and just all of them, the the mayor, the women's circle. So I was really glad they got to go back. And I was going to say, like, I wish they had gone back to the Shire at some point throughout Lord of the Rings, you know, had some of that culture and, and that in it. Yeah, I'm glad they went back er- in book four in Wheel of Time instead of waiting till the very end, like they do in Lord of the Rings, like it's kind of like an afterthought. But this like severely changes the whole landscape of the two rivers uh, for the rest of the series. Yeah, Two Rivers is not just a backwater town in Andor anymore. It's it's a place. They'll be known for more than the, just their tobacco, to say the least. <laughs> <laughs> the Two Rivers leaf. <laughs> okay, so that's Perrin's storyline. Let's talk Elaine and Nynaeve and Co's storyline. So they travel with the Sea Folk, and that's a little interesting. You learn some more about the Athan Mir, I think is my attempt at pronouncing this Sea Folk name you learn about their society you learn that they have women that can channel and then they arrive in Terabon and you get some backstory into what's going on in Tenchiko they've just elected a new leader the uh, the Panarch I think is the name of their leader title and the people are a little bit in unrest Julian and Tom are kind of going out to investigate try to find the Black Aja try to find this male Adam and there's also this character named and this is my best attempt Aganian Aganian maybe anyone can you tell me here <laughs> you know it's funny I looked at that name like right before this as well and thought the same thing I'm like how how is that pronounced I have no idea we're going with Aganian and she is a Shanchan and she's investigating the ability of former Soldam 
I don't remember exactly how this happens, but some Soldam have been collared and they're able to wear the collar, which kind of, again, expands this idea that like more women can channel than previously thought, because now there's some Shan Chan who are actually using the power. And this is obviously big for Shan Chan society because they, like the Children of the Light, believe that the power is not something that should just be trifled with and it needs to be used and harnessed. And so that's an interesting plot there that that's going to continue to expand. This is kind of where that begins. And so everyone meets up, they kind of hang out at an inn for a while. There's this weird scene where the girls all get drunk and they're like back and forth in the world of dreams and really just kind of like hanging around until something happens. And then finally it does happen and they locate the black Aja. They go in and they find the find the black Aja. They find what they're looking for in the male Adam. And they also run into uh, Mohidian, Jake. I, I would say Mogidian, but I don't know. Yeah, I was always saying Mogadin, but I don't. Yeah, uh, Mogadin. I think they do say Mogadin in the audiobooks. Yeah, that sounds familiar. We'll go. We'll go Mogadin. That rolls off the tongue a little bit better for me. So this is one of another Forsaken that's appeared, and Nynaeve fights her. I think Caden kind of talked about this already. Nynaeve is able to get the upper hand because Nynaeve is like a plus plus in power, and we capture her for a second, but then in the confusion, she escapes. And that's pretty much the plot of their adventures in Tenshiko. We also, and then also the Adam is like passed off to Bail Doman to be sunk at the bottom of the sea. We want to get rid of this thing. They collect another seal from the Dark One's prison. They probably learn a few other little tidbits, but I mean, that's the plot. Like, what did you guys really connect with there? What do you think was most significant? One of my favorite parts is when Mogadine comes in to uh, the inn where Nynaeve and Egwene are staying and kind of... Or Elaine. Or Elaine, sorry. Yes, Elaine. And I think they call it, she says she uses compulsion or something. She makes them basically tell them everything that they know. And yeah, I just really liked watching her like have total control for a second. And like, it made the Forsaken look really like strong and, and scary. And then Nynaeve like, you know, beats her in the fight which i was a little less happy about but i, I really like that scene and then one thing that was weird is when uh, elaine she rescues the panarch basically wraps the one of the black aja and flows of air right and that was just one this is the part where i was like where, where was their plan if they were going to even find the black aja which they did and they found one they didn't even like do anything about it they just kind of got the panarch away and that was it i thought the goal was to stop basically just find out what the black Aja is doing and stop them, which they did by getting the Adam, but like they didn't, they didn't have any plan for like, what are you going to do with the black Aja? They're just like, okay, we stopped them. Now let them go, you know, to their next plot. Like what was, yeah, there was no thinking there. I thought one interesting thing was, this is a bit more of a deep cut, but in the Panarch's palace, there was the skeleton of a giraffe. And I think there's like a sculpture of a hippopotamus. And these are not animals that are, native to Randland at all and we talked about this in I think the Eye of the World podcast where a lot of the some of the other realities and turnings of the wheel are even connected to our world so it's kind of fun I mean I don't have an explanation for that there's a Mercedes-Benz logo on display in that <laughs> in the um the palace I can't remember how it's described it's like it said um they come across a small metal circle with a three-pointed star in the middle that oozed greed and it's supposed to be, it's been confirmed that it's supposed to be the Mercedes-Benz logo. That's awesome. Robert Jordan just hated Mercedes-Benz, apparently. <laughs> I guess, I don't know. If I was an author, I would throw in random things like that. 
another funny thing while they're in Tanchico, like they wear those veils over their faces, right? Like that's the local custom. Again, this is how Robert Jordan shines with his writing, in my opinion, is just the details of the how distinct of a culture Tanchico is. Like they use the the chopsticks or sasara, whatever they're called, and then they wear the veils. Like it feels like a completely different world kind of thing. But I didn't know I never like made this connection, but I, I found it on Reddit. Someone said that they mentioned how only Elaine has trouble wearing the veils. Like Nynaeve doesn't have any trouble with it, but it's always getting stuck in Elaine's mouth. And it's because she literally has her nose in the air that the veil <laughs> is like falling against her mouth. And so that's why she always struggles with it. So I never caught that reading it, but I guess like if you pay a lot like close attention, that's a, a little added detail to how stuck up she is. <laughs> Further evidence to fuel Jake's hatred of Elaine. Yeah, that's strike three right there. <laughs> One redeeming quality about Elaine that I liked was her relationship with Tom. Yeah. That that's probably my favorite part of the whole that whole uh team's progression in the book, right? Is her remembering Tom but not knowing where, and then she kind of remembers but doesn't know the full story. And yeah, I just really like their interaction, and I like Tom looking out for her, even though she treats him like crap. And yeah, so maybe, so maybe that's not a maybe that's strike four for Elaine, but I, <laughs> I like the interaction there. No, yeah, I liked it too. It's it, it puts Tom in this interesting situation where, like, he has fond memories of her mom, but also like that bridge is burned, and so he's like wants to be be this father figure to Elaine, but doesn't really know how to approach it. And she finds herself just slipping right into that. So let's call that a wrap for the girls plot line and wrap up Rand and Matt and Co's plot line. So after they get back from Rudin, Rand is intent on proclaiming himself to be the dragon reborn. He who comes with the Dawn, the Karakarn, if I'm saying that one right. And in order to do this, we're going to journey to, I think Alkar, Dar or something like that. It's it's like the big gathering place for all the clans. Yeah. Right. And this is where Rand's gonna make his big announcement. And so they go and, and they're journeying for a while. This is where we get a lot of information about the Aiel, their customs, etc. Avienda is assigned to teach Rand and is also kind of the spy for the wise ones who are really just like the Aiel version of Aes Sedai. They can channel and, and such. And Moraine is surprised to learn, actually, that they can channel right away. So I guess that's one thing about this book. We get channelers from multiple different sources that were previously unexpected. So we learn how much, how little the White Tower really knows. You also get it in the, uh, the, uh, on the ship to the, the way, C-folk. the Tanchico. The, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They also yeah, the, can channel. The folk have their, their wayfinders, right? And so the party meets up with this caravan, this this caravan of people who are obviously evil, but we don't know exactly how they're evil. And the most important part happens. Matt completes his wardrobe with the black hat that he'll be known for for the rest of the series. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, maybe not the most important. Continue. (laughs) Has Well, he's already adopted the scarf, right? To hide his scar. Yeah, I can't remember when he gets the scarf, but yeah, it's probably before Will you that. be offended if i didn't even notice the hat apparently i haven't read enough into it yet you need to look at more fan art i guess yeah that's okay the, yeah. <laughs> so eventually our party of good and bad people arrive at cold rocks hold which is i think the the seat if you will of the of ruark's clan jake remind me of, the, of this clan's name uh oh shoot 
Uh, just a second. It's the Tardad Aiel. The Tardad, yeah. But is that the clan or is that the Seps? That's the other one. Tardad's the clan, right? So we're going to say Tardads are good and Shidos are bad? Basically, Shidos are just bad. All the others like have good and bad, but Shido, they're not all bad. But I, I wish they were a little grayer than they, they come out to be. <laughs> So there's another raid that happens with Trollocs, of course, at, at Cold Rock's Hold. And then eventually we gear up and we're going to go off to Alkar Dahl. I, I think that's the name of it. Yeah. And Rand is going to proclaim himself. And he does so by climbing up. I picture this like Pride Rock, basically, from Lion King. <laughs> He's going to the edge of the rock. Him <laughs> and Kuladin are both stating their case. And they show their dragon tattoos. And Rand gets up there and he dumps all of the info that's previously been withheld from the majority of the Aiel with their backstory and everything that he learned in Rudin. And he makes it rain, literally. And this is like a sign you know, that he is indeed, he who comes with the dawn. And this is who the Aiel need to follow. And okay, great. Like we're basically, we, we resolve things. But then there's this other thing that goes on with Lanfear and Asmodan at the same time who have been disguised as the travelers in the caravan if you couldn't have picked up on that already I thought that was a little too obvious I think it was meant to be obvious there was a, a misdirection there um, who Lanfear actually was yeah, I think for Asmodan as well right like Rand assumed he was the leader but he's actually the gleeman right when Rand sees them he like talks to himself I think Matt overhears him talking to himself and Matt just thinks he's crazy but he's talking about how like they're evil, they're dark friends, and he assumed Lanfear was one of them. I I like that you knew like it was more obvious. You start to wonder. It, it just builds the plot. You're like, what is what is Rand gonna do? How is he gonna ensnare these? You know, he's laying some. He talks about a trap like over and over again. You know, he's laying yeah. something, but you don't know what it is. And I thought that really built the climax really well at this part of the book. I love the whole the uh, schism and split that you see where Rand. Rand proves that he's the the Karkarn to all the leaders who know the ancient history by telling them the ancient history. But the like the majority of Aiel listening, that's like the last thing that would prove that he's the Karkarn. And so when they hear Kuladin, who hasn't been there, just talk about how they've always been warriors. It's interesting how truth and lies kind of get melded there. And it's easy to see, like, it makes sense how half the population or however many would would join the Shido against Rand, even though the leaders who know the truth are trying to support him. Yeah, it's definitely a hard truth. It's a hard truth for the, your typical IL. I can understand why some wouldn't. That's a good point. It's like one of those things is, I feel like you see in society today, like there's obvious truth out there, but it's easy for people to just decide, like because of how hard it is and like how it would shake their worldview they just kind of dismiss it and they hear someone else who says something that aligns with their worldview. So they just latch onto that and decide to support that. And then, you know, they don't even have to think about the hard news anymore because they've convinced themselves that something else that aligns with them better is the truth. Yeah. Randall Thor is here to break up your echo chambers. Ail. Yeah. <laughs> At first when I was reading it, I was like, man, he, he gave him this knowledge and how, how come like people like ran away and like are completely like, I don't know, they ran away from their seps, right? It wasn't just running away from the Dragon Reborn, but they like were yeah. having huge identity crisis. And at first I was like, wow, that, that seems really harsh. But the more I like think about the culture that Robert Jordan created with them and how, like you mentioned, it's all based on honor and the Jito or however you say that, it actually made a lot of sense. And I thought he did a really good job of actually that that identity crisis made sense. It wasn't irrational. 
Yeah, you get Ail who join Kuladin because they like what he says, and then you have some that are just kind of disgusted with themselves and their society for being so dishonorable and just kind of become lost, like you're saying, just kind of lose their identity and, and wander off. So the final climax, once again, involves Forsaken, as it has in the previous books. Lanfear is kind of taunting Rand, and Asmodan appears and runs off to Rudin in order to find what his goal is to get the access keys, right? The Choden Call. Yeah. The Terangrails that will access the giant saw Angrail. Angrail essentially are small objects of the power. Saw Angrail are larger things that you can wield a lot of power with, such as such as Kalindor. We didn't even talk about the fact that Rand left that in the stone. Yeah, he left it there as a warning that he was he was coming back. Dumb mm-hmm. mess. Anyway, so then they there's this face-off with Asmodean. Rand ultimately severs his tie from the Dark One and collects these access keys to the giant saw Angrel. And then Lanfear does something to kind of shield Asmodean. And Asmodean is now like Rand's personal gleeman who's going to teach him the power. And Lanfear kind of taunts him a bit more. And that's pretty much a wrap for the book. They come back and they see the Shido going off and, and Rand's got his IL group and so right there's there's nothing else that happens that's basically where we end up end here lanfear got exactly what she wanted right i don't know if she explicitly said this at the at the beginning of the book but she wanted rant to be taught by one of the forsaken and kind of set this whole thing up right and it seems to be that rand knows this and knows that she's helping him with this for her own gain and he's going along with it but he's not being duped but at the same time you can't tell if she like totally just like got him or not yeah, you see, like, I think she becomes more formidable at the end here where you see her get everything she wanted. And like Rand's, like you said, Rand's going along with it because he sees the benefit in there. And in his mind, he's wary. But at the same time, you're like, wait, why are you doing this? This is exactly what she wants you to do. The one good thing or the thing that makes me think that he's still, he's just kind of using her in a way is that he hides the, what you were just talking about, the Turang, the Turang real, right? Yeah. Yeah, he doesn't, uh, she doesn't get what she wanted from, from that one part. So that, that makes me think that he, yeah, that he still was wary of her and knows that she's in it for her own gain. Yeah. But I, I like the the possibility of both ways there. The scene where uh, Rand and Asmodian are both holding the Choden Kal, trying to like take it from each other, in my mind, is such like a an anime scene of them like battling for this. There like all this like crazy stuff happening in the background as they're like, trying to draw more and more power from it. And then it, just the climax of him chopping off the the tie to the dark one. I thought that was cool. So I think that's a wrap for the book. Well, we do see at the end, I guess, I guess we, we mentioned this, just the schism in the white tower and then men running off with Swan and Leanne. Yeah, that's sorry. That is probably the last thing we should mention. This happens earlier in the book, but we talked about Elida coming in and deposing <laughs> Swan and Leanne, and they become still, still, so they can no longer use the power. Their appearance even changes. Min comes in and saves them with the help from the cook, Laris, I think is her name. And then they go off and they, they're able to escape. Gawain and Glad have done some things to, they've like fought against the other warders. They've actually supported Elida in this. I think it was just Gawain. Hasn't Glad left already? He was like talking to some white cloaks. He's not mentioned at the end. You don't, if he has gone off, you, you don't know that he's gone off. At least I didn't realize it. But at the end, when, when this is happening, it's just the one that's there. Yeah, just going. 
And the one other thing to mention is that Logan yeah. has also been freed in the commotion, and he joins up with our exiles here. And this is interesting because Min saw the she's seen the crown around his head right. a few times. Do so you know that Logan has something future to do? Yeah, I like how he he's just like barely mentioned in the first book, and it's kind of like a guy who's around while they're at the White Tower, but having that viewing of him having glory and seeing how okay he's like joining a main character now. I remember reading it, getting me excited, like, okay, what's he going to do next? I was going to say, this part of the book is really, like, made... I have internal conflict, because I'm like, Moraine doesn't know what's happened. There's a lot of Aes Sedai out there who don't know, and they're, like, going to go on acting the way they do, and you're like, oh, no, they need to know about this, otherwise so many bad things can happen. So this one scene has, like, caused a lot of conflict in me, and, like, you're like, wow, a lot of things can happen because of this one one plot event. Yeah, massive repercussions coming down the line. They set up Gawain, like you mentioned, Gawain's made some decisions that are going to be character defining for the rest of the series at a time where you'd you'd want the world to become more unified because, you know, the last battle is going to come at some point. You just get more division and and schism spreading around the leadership in the world. Okay, so to close, let's do our top three, bottom three rankings for the book. I know you guys are excited to get into this. We do this for every episode. So based on this book alone, solely on performance like how well did this character do and whatever they were trying to do not a good evil thing just basically how well did they perform so let's start with our bottom three and looks like Caden has a list here so we're gonna start with him i'm tired of coming up with these on the spot so i wrote mine down this time you want me to start at three and then go to one yeah build the drama all right here we go okay three I, I probably put her in here, but Elaine, this, maybe it's too obvious. Maybe I should pick other people. But my, my biggest hang up with her was she let the one black Aja go. Just like didn't still her or anything. Just I felt like that was really unresolved. And I felt like that even though they yeah they got the, they got the Adam and prevented it them from using it to control Rand. I still feel like she partly failed. And one of the whole reasons why they or at least why the Armorlin sent them out after the the, the black sisters. Number two. Or Deeth or Pot on Thane. I was disappointed. He seems like he would be so much more like evil and powerful and like bringing down the two rivers, but feels like he really fell flat in accomplishing that. And this is a guy who like Merdral are terrified of and he couldn't like squash a little village. And maybe that's a shout out to uh, the two rivers and how awesome they are, but I was disappointed in Ordeeth overall. Yeah, come on, Lord Golden Eyes is a tough foe to tangle with. <laughs> yeah, I guess. And then number one, I put Slayer, and maybe it's just because I don't know enough yet, but in this book, I don't really know what his goal was either, but when they're in the dream and he goes to that really, he goes into some tower, right? And I can't remember what it's called, and is it Brigitta that comes and tells yeah. Perrin not to follow him in because it's a really, I don't know if she said evil or anyway, not a good place to go. And so you got this like super bad A guy who's going crazy evil places and killing all the wolves and parents shoots him with one arrow and he runs away kind of a thing. So again, I, I don't know what happens in the future there, but it was a little let down for me with, with Slayer. I thought that would be a bigger part of the battle for the two rivers. Slayer's always been interesting for me. I didn't, I don't think I fully understood everything that was going on with him till the very end of the series, to be honest. There might've been hints. I, there, I'm sure there were hints earlier. I probably could have understood earlier. He's a character I hope they do a bigger focus on in the TV series than he gets in the books, to be honest. Okay, Jake, tell us your bottom three. Um, I totally forgot to make a list, but I'm thinking they're not all 
uh, villains on purpose, but it's just, you know, good guys usually succeed. So the villains have the biggest fails. Um, I'd say instead of Pat and Fane, I'd say the white cloaks in general, because like they had, and I guess they're not all villains, but you know, they had, they had that agreement with Perrin that he was going to give in. All they had to do was help kill shadow spawn. And they failed at that. Like how hard they could have had every gotten everything they wanted from that. If they just would have put in some effort, but they failed there. And they're supposed to be the warriors and yeah. they leave the villagers to do the fighting. Easy win on your part. What were you thinking? Um, and then Mogidian, because she waltzes into the end, compulses Nynaeve and Elaine, totally one-ups them, but her like arrogance, she just underestimates them. She could have taken them out then, but somehow she gets overpowered by an accepted who has a block. Like granted, Nynaeve is strong, but like doesn't know what she's doing, you know? She's playing with her food too much, like a cat and a mouse. Um, and then number one, uh, another forsaken Asmodian. Like, come on, man. <laughs> like, they kind, you kind of get the feeling that he was like, why was he a forsaken? You know, <laughs> like he, he doesn't, he doesn't seem all that evil, to be honest. He doesn't seem that power hungry, or like he's not like this demonic Ishmael. You know, he's just, he just wanted to be around. He's just like Lanfear's crony. He wants to hang yeah. out with everyone else. He's he's a really interesting character. I like him as a character. I just don't get why he became a Forsaken, to be honest. And his plan like totally fails. Like he wasn't sneaky. He wasn't powerful enough to fulfill his plan and ends up being in the worst situation any character in the series could be in. We just did Harry Potter in the Prisoner of Azkaban, so he's like the Peter Pettigrew. Of the Forsaken, like he wants yeah, to hang kinda. out with the cool kids that are more powerful, and then goes to the bad side, just like have something to do. I don't know. Yeah, like I don't even think he likes the other Forsaken. Well, none of the Forsaken like each other. I want him and Rand to get on the same side now, but I also don't at the same time, just because he's so lame. If that makes sense, like you're like, oh, if he has to fight for him, like why can't he just come back to the good side and actually have good? It doesn't seem that evil, so maybe he can fight. If nothing else for like self preservation. But at the same time, I'm just like, does Randy even want this guy on his side because he's just kind of a bum? I, th- I think it brings in this this cool dynamic. Like you have one of the Forsaken on his team, albeit you know like the the lamest of them all. But <laughs> it bring, it brings in the question: like, is he going to commit fully to the good side? Like he acts as if he is because he's like, I'm throwing all my eggs into the basket that's going to win or be my best hope, you know. But I'm sure Forsaken are going to want to kill him for it, and he's going to he might see this as an opportunity to betray Rand to gain favor with the dark one again. But in this book, total lame <laughs> Okay. Mine number three, I'm going with Barrelane. I get it. Your country is always the underdog. My has no, uh, you know, political leverage or anything. And so you've got to use your beauty in order to influence things, but come on, stop throwing yourself at all the main characters. It's annoying. Just, just stop, please. Like come up with a better move here. So Barrelane, number three, number two, I'm trying to go for characters you guys haven't hit yet. So I'll say Kuladin, just because he fails at becoming Karakaran and Ran totally one-ups him. I mean, I guess he does lead like a significant portion of the Aeol away, so he doesn't do that poorly. But he's also annoying to me because of all the problems that the Shido caused. So Kuladin, for pure annoyance and dislike, is going at number two. And number one, worst character... In this book, I don't know if I can go away from the ones that you guys have put 
I'm just gonna stick with Elaine. I guess the the letters and <laughs> number the one and just in general, like it was a very poor Elaine book. It's the beginning <laughs> of the end for her. <laughs> so now let's talk top characters. Caden, do you wanna switch us over to some good performances? Yeah. So I'll start with an obvious one, Rand. I liked him this book, just actually reading through him. Uh, and I thought he he executed his trap really well at the end, even if Asmodian was kind of a not that great of a villain. He still got exactly what he wanted. He wanted someone who could teach him, and I thought he executed it really well. And, and he definitely got some power upgrades as far as the, the one power goes in this book as well. Number two is Lanfear. I, I just like, I'm really hoping partly too that she like becomes like a really formidable opponent here. And I think she's she's playing it really well and she got him to do what she wanted. And and for that, like it worked out exactly how she wanted. So if that's how we're rating it here, that, that's why she's on my list. The number one, like for sure, Loyal. I'm just, I'm still back on Loyal. He is, <laughs> that part was just so awesome. Nice. <laughs> so he might not ever make it into my top three again, but in this book, he, for carrying Gaul all the way back after showing the, Waygate. He, he makes it to my my top. Those are my top three in a different order. I had I had it loyal ran than Landfear just because loyal did awesome, but like what he did was on a smaller scale. Yeah, dang, same ones. It's just Landfear. You know, she did exactly. She got exactly what she wanted. She's left in this position of kind of close to Rand. Like he, he doesn't trust her, but at the same time, they have their relationship is to the point where she can show up and they just talk. You know what I mean? He's not like he's not trying to kill her no one else knows none of the other good guys know that he's communicating with her and she's set him up with this deal with asmodian that again no one else knows about you know it's like his little dirty secret kind of thing rand i put there just because i i think this book does a great job of building rand's character uh we didn't really mention this but the scene where he tries to revive that girl who died during the trollic attack in the stone of tear yeah yeah in this book, you really see the pattern pulling on the tavern. Like Rand is feeling like he needs to fulfill himself as the dragon reborn and get ready for the last battle. And like, he's a good guy. And really what he wants to do is just help people. And I feel like that scene really personified that. Like he just wants to help this girl, but instead he has to let her die and use other people like Dael and others in order and the, the high Lords and tier in order to, be put in a position to stop the dark one. And I think it, it did a really good job ca- uh, characterizing the shepherd made into a savior and him trying to reconcile with that, where he wants to be this force for good, but he, you know, he doesn't really know how to do it. But that scene with him and the little girl just showcases like if he could just simply save one person, he'd be happy with it. But instead he's pulled along this journey. Randolph Thor, man of mystery, man of mystery. No wonder he has the. Uh... Three girls going after him. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, totally. He's a man's man. Three times the man. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's at least two men inside that head. (laughs) (laughs) All right, my top three. I like yours. I'm going to go maybe a little more outside the box for mine. So I'll put put Avienda in there. We got to introduce her as a character. She had some good scenes. You can tell that she is... uh, She's one of my favorite female characters, we'll say. Like Same. she's she's really solid and is not prone to some of the silly fancies that the other <laughs> girls unfortunately fall prey to. Avienda. So number two, I'm gonna go another female character that's not always my favorite, but in this book did really well. And this is Fail. 
She had a really strong book. I really like the moment where Perrin sends her away, but she comes back with all the allies and saves the day. Fayo, like I said, can be obnoxious at times, and we'll see that throughout. But in this book, it was really good. It was a really good development for her as a character. Her and Perrin's relationship was awesome, which is why I'm going with her husband, Perrin Ibarra, number one. I'm surprised you guys didn't put Perrin on this list because over anyone else, I would say this is Perrin's book. Like This is the book where he really asserts himself, grows as a character, becomes who he's going to be. I, I agree with that. I I almost put him on there, but when I was just thinking like he he didn't do any like single action to me that was like like an amazing thing. Like he was a leader through most of it. And he and he he did great things in the book, but just it was between him and Loyal for me. And Loyal like going off on that mission. Yeah, Loyal had more of a hero time moment and Perrin was a little more in the background. Yeah. Like and protecting the kids at the the field and everything. Anyways. I agree with that. This definitely was like uh, you could say Perrin's book. He has like a lot of showtime. I don't know what I'm saying. Like a lot of time on screen. Time on screen time. Yeah, he's got a lot of screen time and lots of development there. And most of the emotional moments in the book were probably through the eyes of Perrin too, with his parents or his family dying, and then marrying Fail, and then like him basically sacrificing himself to the Trollocs and or the White Cloaks kind of thing. I'm surprised we didn't mention uh, Egwene at all. Like she had, she had a really cool development this this book. You know, she's starting to to learn under the wise ones. I think wise ones themselves would be a an honorable mention for my top three list. They really showcase how powerful they are as dreamers and this like basically untapped skill that the rest of the world, rest of the the air quote civilized world, like knows nothing about, and they're masters of it. I, I also thought about putting the wise ones on my list, but I'm happy, Stephen, you put Avienda on on yours because I, I really liked her and I, I hope she becomes more and more like involved in, in the story. I think she will be. I'm sure for her of the three girls to end up with Rand. So just saying, throw that out there. Far Snows, am I right, Jake? Far Snows. That comes up. I think that, that's on book five. Watch for that chapter. It's Jake's All favorite right. chapter. <laughs> <laughs> this sounds good. Is that sarcastic favorite or a good favorite? It's it's a good chapter. It, lots of plot or character development in that chapter. I had some some things I wanted to kind of ask Caden about. So first of all, what are you thinking of the Shan Chan? You know, they played a big role at the end of book two. And they kind of been talked about throughout, and then you see, we kind of get a bigger focus on them again in book four. What are your what are your thoughts on them? Yeah, it seems like book four was just really setting them up for, for the future to come back. Yeah. Because, yeah, they, they definitely weren't like a main part of this book, but just with Nynaeve and Elaine's part, yeah, it seems like they're, it feels like they're going to play a really big part either in Tarmageddon or just later on in, in the next couple of books that's going to cause Rand or, you know, some sort of trouble Yeah, in the full plot. They feel like they're going to be a big part. It seems like because they've been building them up for so long, too. Like they just introduce them slowly in two and then they keep coming back. But it feels like they're really being built up for something big. But we'll see. They, you get some pretty big revelations for their culture. You know, Aginian, um learning that even the soul dam can channel. And then also the male Adam and where that ends up being. That Does that conclude at the end of this book? I can't remember when you find that out. You just know that the the male Adam is going to be taken out by Beldoman, but it hasn't yet. Okay. But just that connection to the Shan Chan, you uh, know, they yeah. have collar channelers, and then you see this ancient yep. device. And yeah, different build up there. Yep. Oh, 
just in in general, how do you think this like book four has changed your outlook on the series, and how does it compare to book one, like one through three? Not like in quality, but just I feel like there's a huge tone shift, you know, like in book four compared to book one or two. Yeah, this one for me was the one that opened up like the long epic. Yeah, book one, two, and three all had like very. It seemed like very kind of closed off at the end. Most of the plot lines were answered. And there were different prophecies that hadn't been, but this one really seemed like it was like opening up for a long, a long epic. And I liked the feel of it a lot better than the first three as well. They seem more mature, at least with other writers. You definitely, I see them maturing as they're writing. As you read later books in their series, they, it seems like more in-depth plots. And maybe that's just because they've had more to build on by that point. But it seemed like overall, this plot was more mature, the relationships, the progression of the characters. And maybe that's just because at this point, I don't know at what point, you guys would probably know this more than I would, at what point Robert Jordan had decided to make it an epic, if that was always the plan or not. But this this, this is where it felt like that that really started for me. Yeah, I feel like, if I remember right, I think he thought it would take, like, I think at first he thought, oh, I'm going to write a trilogy. And then, oh, no, it's going to be like five books. And then, it, you know, it's just always expanded. But I think definitely by book four, when he was writing it, he realized... I'm going to make this longer than I initially intended. I'm going to start expanding on things because there's like prophecies and foretellings and stuff in book one and two. And then book three doesn't really, it, the only one you get fulfilled is the the stone and tear. And so I feel like he was like, okay, I'm going to have to like plan another 10 books here to get everything <laughs> out that I need to. At the time he died, when he was passing off his notes to Sanderson, or not to Sanderson, but when he was getting his notes ready and his wife eventually passed him off. The idea was that the conclusion would be in one book titled Memory of Light. And then when Brandon Sanderson got into the notes and he's like, no way is this possible. And he made it into three books. So that might give you some insights as to what the planning was like in the epic. (laughs) Yeah, even after writing 11 books, he still wasn't able to see that the rest that he had needed to be split into three more books. You know, he was always expanding. And then last little thing, they mentioned the, the Tower of Ginjai in this book, like Perrin sees it, Brigitte talks about it. Do you have any idea what that is, the significance of that? It, uh, it made it seem like it was connected to the worlds of the Aelfin and Aelfin. Uh-huh. I don't know if that, that that's what I kind of remember about it. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't remember if they outright said, if Brigitte outright said it or if it was um, later. yeah. They say it's evil, but not in a way that the Dark One is evil. They that's the they see that in book one when they're on the ship with Bail Dilmon. That's like a tower they oh. see. So it's interesting. It, it's, it'll get an important role later on in the series. Yeah, it seems like Robert Jordan does a lot where he's like, hey, here's this thing. Now think about it for a couple books and then yeah. <laughs> it'll come important. Another good example for that was I think in the first or second book, they, I think it's the second book, they come across this big excavation. Yeah, right. maybe you remember this of yep. some kind of weird object of the power, and that is one of the giant songreals that the Terangreal that they're fighting over at the end accesses. Yep. Yeah. All right, so that's a wrap for the Shadow Rising. The Shadow Rising is the longest book in the Wheel of Time. So if you've made it through that one, you can make it through the rest. In terms of actually word count, I think Lord of Chaos might be longer in terms of pages. But according to Wikipedia, Shadow Rising is the most words in the series. And thanks, listeners of Phantology. We appreciate your support. If you like what we're doing, check us out at Phantology Books and social medias. Hop on Discord and tell us all the mistakes we made, because we definitely made some. Tell us what you like, what you didn't like. 
and consider supporting on Patreon. You can find us at www.phantologybooks.com. So Jake, Caden, Wheel of Time experts, see you guys next time. See ya. See you guys.